Hello and welcome to Carer Catalysts, a podcast that connects innovators for unpaid carers. I'm Suzanne, co-founder and head of carer support at Mobilize. I'm also caring for my husband, Matt, who has young onset Parkinson's. And I'm James, CEO and co-founder of Mobilize, but perhaps more importantly, I'm son to my mum, who has MS. And at Mobilize, we believe that with innovation, technology and a bold vision, we can help carers to thrive. And we're bringing the same energy to this podcast, hearing from inspiring leaders in adult social care from across the country, listening to their stories about making transformational change for unpaid carers. So sit back, grab a cup of tea and join us for Carer Catalysts, brought to you by Mobilize. So welcome everyone, and thanks for taking time out of your day to join us for this Carer Catalyst podcast. Um, It's really great to be here together doing this, James, and you've been chatting with our interviewee this week, Sarah McClinton. So tell us a bit about who she is. Well, she's a bit of a megastar, really. Uh, So Sarah used, at the time of recording, she was president of ADAS, the Association of Directors of Adult Social Care, Uh, so now past president. But the day job for Sarah is Director of Health and Adult Services at the Royal Borough of Greenwich. Um, so loads of uh, really valuable stuff in her professional life. And she she's come to those positions with a load of different roles in uh, public health and care. But it's really interesting. In the last year as president of ADAS, Sarah's been a real champion for unpaid carers and particularly making sure that we're constantly striving to do better and to make sure that we're really honouring the voice of carers and the experience of carers uh, when it comes to social care as well. That's great. And I've had a quick listen to the interview and her depth of experience really comes across, actually. And I really particularly enjoyed her reflections on different types of innovation throughout her career, not just at this stage. She's been involved in a really hands-on way, developing new things, and as well as more recently creating the environment for that to happen in the team she manages and the strategies she's responsible for. Well, let's have a listen. I started by asking Sarah about what it was that got her into social care in the first place. So I, I wonder, you've spent your entire career, I think, in in social care of, of one sort and another. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what brought you into social work in the, in the first place. Yeah, I have spent most of my career in, in, in social care. Um, I, I think I, I've also had jobs that have covered broader uh, responsibilities in local government, so voluntary and community sector commissioning and, and those sorts of things. And also uh, I had a spell as a, a civil servant, so working very much um, with with the NHS on um, mental health policy. Um, but I guess in terms of what brought me into this kind of work, um, I, I was very idealistic and, and, and felt um, growing up quite affronted by seeing inequalities and social injustice. And, uh, and I guess I... I wanted to to change the world, so I so I came in um, uh, to social work. Really, was the route into into the career that I've had, um, and uh, yeah, I was so I was a very idealistic kind of young social worker. And one of my first jobs was working um, working with young offenders, so people who uh, were in the criminal justice system, um, and uh, working on a scheme that was providing alternatives to custody. So it felt like young people were. Um, you know, potentially had made mistakes in their lives that were really more to do with the kind of social and economic circumstances that they were in. Uh, And uh, it was very much about giving people kind of uh, more chances in life. 
Um, and then I also did some work um, on women's reproductive rights, uh, uh, being a sort of strong feminist. Um, and and then one of my first sort of qualified social work jobs was working um, with people with HIV and AIDS in the well early 90s. So when when HIV kind of first hit um, West London and um, and there weren't any services that were available for people. Uh, uh, our home helps refused to go in and see people with HIV and AIDS. Uh, and it was very much a time when there was um, therefore uh, freedom within that role to um, create new services. And there was a lot of kind of peer-to-peer -peer support that we developed and, um, and, and much more personalized and individual responses to people. So very much the kind of personalization that we uh, agenda that is talked about a lot now. Um, we were, you know, as a young social worker, I, that was my experience is how do you innovate? How do you respond to people's needs um, when when the existing kind of traditional services really weren't there for them? So, um, so yeah, that was that was my sort of introduction to social work and, and very much kind of um, uh, deeply embedded in, in, in innovation. It's very interesting that you you mentioned that that period of time in history around HIV and AIDS, because um I wonder whether you've seen any echoes of that massive disruption uh, to existing services in the COVID-19 pandemic that gives you the opportunity to try new things and, and do so really quickly. Yeah, I think there were definitely parallels that we saw during the pandemic when, you know, technological advance was, was you know, rapidly adopted. We we're all were working from home. And uh, actually, I wasn't working from home um, in the early phases of the pandemic because we weren't set up to do so. So going into the office every day. Um, but, I, but I think some of those um, ways of working and, and um, people being able to be much more connected through technology um, in their daily lives, uh, you, you know, was 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 kind of rapidly um, took us forward, really, in terms of um, some of the ways of working. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a moment ago feeling very idealistic when you started out in your career. Have, have you found that sort of rubbed off with the grubby reality of getting things done, or, or are you more inspired for the future at this point? I still, I do still feel inspired, and I and I feel that 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 sort of um, will um, you know fight for uh, uh, social injustice, and 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 that's what social care is all about. And so um, I think with colleagues that 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 is still what drives us. And 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 working at national level with ADAS, I think it's that that really keeps you in touch with with a lot of that. Uh, but equally, um, you know, talking to uh, frontline staff and people who work in Greenwich, um, you know, that that's that people still have that fire in their bellies, so to speak. And and um, I think yeah. that that is very much still there. Um, I, I obviously, um, you know, the way systems operate often, um, you can feel like you're you're in a sausage factory almost. And how do you, you know, how do you keep hold of that sense of social care is actually about human kindness? It's about how do we help and support people to uh, live their lives in a full way, in the way that they want to live them, and and hold, holding on to all of that, I think, is really important. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was. I was so pleased to be with you guys at the NCAS conference in Manchester in November last year. The first time I've spent a lot of time with a large number of directors of adult social care in the same room. And it was so striking that you know, there could be a mood of real depression given all of the challenges in social care. But certainly my takeaway was that there's, a, there's a, that strength of common purpose 
and a real, really exciting vision for what this could be uh, over the next few years was was something very exciting. So you, you've come onto a podcast about innovation for unpaid carers. I wonder, uh, so I assume that you think it's important. C- can you say a little bit about why you think it's important to innovate specifically for unpaid carers? Well, I think the first thing to say is it's really important that we pay attention to the needs of unpaid carers. Unpaid carers do do a huge amount. They do a fabulous and, and really amazing job. Uh, and often that goes unrecognised um, and they're not uh, valued as much as, as, as they need to be. Uh, we all know that the social care system is very much understrained, very stretched. And what that can mean is that unpaid carers are being asked to do more and more to fill in the gaps. Uh, that's not right. And, and uh, we obviously uh, need to continue to argue for um, uh, you know, the system as a whole to be better resourced. But I think that within that, uh, as directors of adult social services, we need to be uh, paying attention, as I say, to the needs of carers and recognising how much they do do. I think that um, in in terms of uh, understanding what matters most to carers and then thinking about new ways and innovating uh, uh, our responses to that uh, is, is also uh, really important. Um, we expect more and more of carers, but the, but they should expect of us that we're we're thinking and, and working harder to uh, find ways to support them uh, and finding new ways to support them. Uh, and often that can be about um, you know enabling people to be more connected, to uh, you know respond to that feeling that am I the only person that that is experiencing these feelings? So the you know the importance of uh, peer support, which you know I talked about earlier, really in terms of my early career. Um, but it, it's those things that, that can really tip people over the edge. And how do we um, think about different ways of being able to support people emotionally, but also practically? Um, and, um, you know, obviously the current cost of living crisis makes adds even more pressure to people's lives, including the lives of unpaid carers. So finding practical ways and, and ways of supporting people um, uh, financially, I think is important, but 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 also that that emotional support is really critical, uh, and finding new ways to do that. It's really interesting that you describe there finding new ways to look at things, and I wonder sometimes when we speak to carers or we speak to people uh, in the provision of services, the theme seems to be well, if we just funded the existing services properly, uh, we would get the kind of outcome we're looking for. How do you respond to that observation? Well, as I said, I do think it's important that we fund um, the adult social care system properly uh, and that we pay attention to some of the issues in relation to the paid workforce, uh, because as we know, there's currently a huge shortage in terms of uh, people, you know, literally not having enough pairs of hands to be able to uh, provide services to the level that, that, that we need to. And I think that comes back to sort of pay and recognition to a large extent. But I think that the um, if we just kept on, we can't really just keep doing more of the same. If we just kept on trying to provide the sorts of traditional services, um, then I don't think we're necessarily responding to uh, what carers are telling us and what 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 carers feel would is is what they need. So, and a lot of the traditional services are focused on um, you know respite or support for the person that's being cared for. Uh, and I think the Care Act is a great piece of legislation. Uh, and within that, that gives us the scope 
and 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 really the duty to uh, provide support for unpaid carers in their own right. But I think that that um, uh, you know being able to do that in imaginative ways, in ways that really do respond to what will make a difference to that individual and their particular set, set of circumstances, uh, is what we need to do. So that that again kind of underlines the need to kind of keep innovating and thinking of. Of, of, of what's going to be important for that individual and how might we facilitate uh, support for them that is uh, going to make a difference to their lives. I'm so pleased you brought up the CARE Act. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I, I'm, I'm not yet going to get it, a T-shirt printed on it, but uh, uh, the more, more and more um, uh, we've been working on that through Mobilise, uh, the more it, it feels like a great piece of legislation in, in so many ways. You, you mentioned... Just at the beginning there, Sarah, the, the importance of uh, kind of making sure that we give the proper attention to unpaid carers. And I, and I wonder, how do you guys manage that in in Greenwich? Because you've got so many competing priorities that um, that you've got to deal with. How, how do you make sure on a weekly, monthly basis that you're really engaging with the needs of unpaid carers? So in Greenwich, um, we've uh, recently published a, a carers strategy. So we worked um, with our local um, organisations, but also with carers locally to understand what mattered to them and then look at how we could be more innovative, really, in terms of what our offer was. So there were there kind, of, kind of a number of things that, that, that um, uh, came out through that. And um, and I was talking to a carer recently who um, has an autistic son who was moving through from children's into adulthood. Uh, and she was saying to me that um, she had a social worker come to visit her to sort of talk about what adult services and what that might look like. Um, and uh, this this was, uh, uh, you know, her son has uh, complex needs, but has been, you know, looked after at home with lots of family support as well as um, some services but she said what she expected when the social worker came around was a a bit of a thank you for haven't you done a good job so far recognizing all of the um, sacrifices that she had to make in her life and 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 um, you know what 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 they'd done really uh, uh, how much they'd done really to manage uh, and support their son and his needs in a way that could easily have ended up with a, a very different um, set of circumstances. Uh, and him living uh, away from the family in institutional care. And so she said one of the things that she was expecting was a bit of a recognition and a thank you that that they'd done such a good job. Um, uh, and that wasn't quite her experience. Um, uh, uh, you know, often the system that we operate uh, is, is, you know, very defensive and very much about what, what, what people can or can't have and often focused on what they can't have. And actually what she what she was really needing was that recognition and, and, and that recognition and valuing. So I think innovation is not always about fancy tech. It's also about how how we uh, make sure that the system that we operate is based on human kindness and understanding what people's needs are and and and, and recognizing and valuing carers. Uh, but there were other things that we sort of um, developed through that strategy, and one was a. Uh, was a, a, a relatively small pot of money, uh, which was um, uh, then made available for innovation bids. So that could be individual carers or small local organisations or, uh, uh, or uh, yeah, innovative organisations to to uh, to bid for money to uh, enable us to um, 
innovate and uh, and provide some some different kinds of offers. So there are all kinds of, um, you know, it's very oversubscribed, but lots of really good ideas and lots of great uh, thinking, um, which included, uh, for example, um, a young carer uh, wanting to set up an app that would um, be able to capture what mattered most to carers and then also link them into local services and resources. Um, there, um, there were other examples of uh, people uh, wanting to set up peer support and, and, and kind of local groups. Um, so, so I guess it was just giving a. It was uh, a, the strategy was very um, co-produced, so it's made, it, it was developed with people, uh, and uh, and the ideas then that came out of that were very much responding to what people felt they needed and what would be most helpful to them so that that ranged from sort of te technological innovation if you like to through to that much more relational approach to practice and how we uh, work with people and, and and value people so that's just an example of one of the ways that we've approached it in in Greenwich yeah thank you the, the, there's something so powerful there about um, uh, trying to make sure we get to the humanity of all of this and um and of course, you know, innovation, measuring the success of innovation is really hard in any event. Trying to do so whilst also prioritizing humanity and relationships, which can feel so intangible, is really hard. Um, what are you looking for in terms of the outcomes of uh, some innovation that would say to you, hey, yeah, this has been a success. This is helpful. Um, well, I think... Uh, in terms of the outcomes that that we're looking for, uh, the outcomes have to be what works for for carers. Uh, so what enables them to continue uh, to feel supported and to do the really important job that they do. I think people's experience is a, is as is equally important to outcomes, if you like. So um, and that goes back to that um, relational practice and how we work with people. I think it, it's um, as I say often. The, um, the sort of help that people need might not be particularly, might not cost a lot of money. Uh, it might be just, a, a, you know, a relatively small resource that's needed um, to enable somebody to, to feel valued and to feel that they're able to uh, continue um, caring. So I think I think that experience and that that kind of um, system, which is, you know, uh, that, that humanist approach, if you like, is, is, is really important in terms of people's experience. Um, I think in terms of the outcomes, um, you know, there are there are sort of outcomes for for our system, if you like, really, in terms of, you know, how, how um, the support that we offer to carers enables people to uh, live in, in their own homes for longer and, and those sorts of things. But I think uh, ultimately the most important outcomes are um, uh, have to be defined uh, by un uh, unpaid carers themselves, and what what works for them, and what's uh, what's um, uh, what's how the support is actually making a difference in their lives. Those are the kinds of outcomes that I think are most important. And um, we probably don't have uh, as sophisticated ways of being able to measure and 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 uh, and track that as 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 we perhaps need to. But I think that's where you know, some of the innovative ideas that people are coming up with actually do help us then to um, collect data in different ways uh, in, and um, uh, collect it in a much more person-centered ways. And that also then enables us to, uh, to understand better what outcomes are for individuals and then how those are aggregated. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, there's something about 
making the user experience um, uh, really high quality uh, so that people can share data and reflect on what's going on for them in an individual way. And then finding a way of bringing that together, um, you know, probably going to be more sophisticated than, than a dashboard, but, but something that can give you and your colleagues at a senior level a, a sense of how that's working um, at a system level as well. I'm just thinking um, it, it can be really exciting to look at um, all the different ranges of things that technology can do for us. Um, and sometimes that assumes that everybody has a smartphone in their hand or they're wandering around with a, a VR headset. Um, how can we make sure that everyone gets the benefit of innovation, e even if they're not necessarily a, a kind of a smartphone native? Well, I think that's a really good point that you raise. Uh, and I think that that's something that we all struggle with. Um, there is a sort of digital divide, I think. And, and um, I think it's really important we don't make assumptions about who does use or who doesn't use technology. Uh, but not everyone is, as you say, has a, a you know a, a smartphone and 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 uses uh, technology in in uh, you know as a, a, a if I, speaking for myself, I probably don't use it to the um, extent <laughs> that I might do. But but so I think um, I guess as a local authority, um, we and and this particularly I, I guess. Um, came out of some of the work that we were doing during the pandemic where suddenly digital became much more important uh, in terms of communication and, and and being able to work with people so we did quite a lot of work uh, to to look at kind of digital inclusion and how could we um, uh, how could we increase people's digital skills and 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 lessen that digital divide uh, and that involved you know lots of work in libraries with you know um, devices and things that were available to people and um, you know all sorts of um, ways of uh, uh, you know people teaching other other residents to how to use them. So I think there there, there are things that we have a responsibility to do to try and lessen that 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 what I've kind of described as a digital divide. But I think also we have to recognise that that not everyone will always use digital channels or, or digital uh, ways of of, of operating, uh, and um, and we have to accept that and we have to. Um, therefore, make sure that our, our, our services are accessible uh, for those people that, 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 that don't use, um, uh, that are less kind of digitally skilled. Um, does that mean that people can't benefit from innovation? I don't know. I've really thought about that question. Um, I, I, I think that we have to as I say, as, as, as local authorities, we have to accept that we have to have, you know, different ways of people accessing services. And, and, um, and that is, you know, that, that has to be the case. Um, so there's more we can do to sort of help enable people to, to develop and build skills. I suppose there's different kinds of innovation as well. So, so digital innovation is one thing that which perhaps, you know, some people might not benefit from if they, if they don't um, kind of have necessarily have those skills but i think that there are other types of innovation that people uh, ought to be able to uh, to benefit from and and whatever uh, as i say we we need to have different ways of of people being able to access support and that support being offered in in um you know in in, in different multiple channels and different ways thanks sarah it, it... Are there any examples of innovation that you've been really inspired by that you've seen and uh, would, would would take lots of lessons from? 
Um, so, I, I mean, I've seen incredible uh, innovation from um, carers groups, for example, if I think about uh, some of my experience in Camden, uh, where, you know, carers got together on um, different bus routes and, you know, all kinds of different ways of thinking about how to connect people. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I, you know, I talked a bit earlier about um, the uh, care strategy that we developed in Greenwich and the kind of as part of that having a an innovation pot so there's been some really interesting work I think that's come out of that for example um, some specific research into um, the barriers that black and brown carers for, for example uh, experience and and therefore what what um, what we might need to do really in terms of making sure that our services are uh, inclusive and meet the needs of our, our very diverse communities so there are you know, there are those sorts of uh, examples. Uh, that was also done as a joint strategy. So I think that's, that's quite important in terms of making sure the innovation is not in a silo, but is, you know, connected to, you know, GPs are often the people, aren't they, who are in touch with carers and don't always recognise it. But how do you uh, make sure that the, the um, uh, you know, that, that sharing data and, and, and technology is used really in terms of uh, maximising the opportunity for, uh, people getting to the right care and support uh, through whichever route they go. Um, and then I think, you know, the, there's, um, you know, great examples of, of uh, uh, can I mention Mobilize and the the, the, the actual, you, you know, the, the um, uh, digital ways of being able to connect people up and, 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 uh, uh, and collect that data and, and, and use that to think about what, what new um, responses there might need to be for, for carers. So there's some great examples there, Sarah, of uh, different innovations that you've seen. I wonder if you were giving some advice to somebody um, who in their authority was really keen to do something impactful, transformational for unpaid carers, but feeling a little bit in intimidated by the risk, trying to find the funding for it, trying to procure a service. Um, what advice would you have for actually making that happen in practice? So I think my advice would be to be bold and to think about the opportunities and, um, uh, you know, create the space for the thinking. And so one of the things I think is really important is co-producing with carers what, what it is that they need and what, what, what they want. And I think that's part of building a, a business case, if you like, as to what is going to make the difference. Uh, and we know that, um, you know, supporting carers is actually, you know, really uh, fundamentally vital in terms of, um, enabling people to to continue to care and 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 that relatively small amounts of money can make a big difference which you know ultimately save uh, lots of money down the line so so actually being able to create space for things like innovation funds is is um, is I think really important um, and there are lots of creative ways of working with local organizations sometimes our procurement rules can feel like they're the barrier when actually you know the social value act and um, uh, you know, different ways of, of, of thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the partners that, that, that you've got uh, means that you don't necessarily have to think about it in terms of big procurements. So I think it's um, firstly recognising really and valuing unpaid carers and then thinking this has got to be, a, you know, almost like a specific and ring fence part of, uh, of, of any kind of strategy around care and support. Uh, and and creating some space to to do that thinking to work with carers and 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 to look at what would make a difference to them 
Um, and as I say, often that's relatively small amounts of money in the scheme of, of, of things, but can have massive impact. So yes, the, there's risks. It might be a bit of a kind of leap of faith, but the opportunity and the, and the benefits are, I think, hugely, uh, the reward is there. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I'd encourage people to be bold, as I say, and, uh, uh, and, and make it a priority. Thanks, Sarah. There's, there's some great uh, practical suggestions in there. I, I, I wonder, in your career, have there been any moments where you've wanted to do something, but actually, when you get into the weeds of making it happen, it, it can all feel a bit too much and you've been tempted to give up? So I think um, so. I, I think there are probably lots of times when I've uh, sort of felt the need to take a risk and a bit of a leap of faith in in doing something which is not necessarily tried and tested, but but feels like um, if we keep doing more of the same, we're not really going to move forward. So what what can we do that's different? So one example of that is um, a piece of work that I did in Camden where we were. Um, building a, a, a new supported living scheme, which you know had been many, many years, as you can imagine, many years in the um, in the planning, because these things take uh, a long time. And when it, the original idea, um, you know, it was probably actually getting on for ten years since it was uh, thought about. So, uh, so you then kind of think about how to make it relevant and and the right thing to do now. So, so the plan was to do a sort of fairly traditional. Uh, extra care scheme and to commission the support for that scheme and uh, I I asked the kind of service head to think about well what could we do differently here Uh, and as a result of that conversation we well we went we had a visit to uh, the uh, Hergeveg dementia village near Amsterdam and we um, and we looked at how could we uh, introduce a kind of Burtzog model if you like into into that particular um, facility that that we were developing um, and that involved quite a lot of very different thinking and and um, and actually the decision to have the service as an in-house service that which, which gave us the um, opportunity, I suppose, to test and learn and to reiterate as we went along rather than a, a kind of commissioning, uh, external commissioning approach where you've got to specify everything and you're in a kind of contractual position. Uh, so it took a lot of hard work and a lot of... Um, uh, convincing different parts of the council, for example, about how we went about recruiting to that scheme because uh, we wanted to do it on a values-based recruitment model rather than the uh, the way that the council traditionally operated. So it, it was a constant kind of um, having to ask the question about how can we do this differently and are we doing this differently at every sort of step of the way, if you like. And that, that can be quite difficult. Uh, I think in that particular example, that the, the broader... Um, uh, environment uh, in terms of that, that that the way that the local authority was moving and thinking about uh, services more broadly, the conditions were were were, were quite favourable. So uh, although it was hard work and we had to do quite a lot of convincing of people, it also felt like we we kind of got there in the end. Um, I'm trying to. I, I can't think of an immediate example where it's we've. Got, uh, I, I don't think I've ever quite given up. Actually, I think. I think there are the. I think of examples where I've not made as much progress as I would have liked to, and and then you know sometimes you get the opportunity to go back to something and and sort of try again to uh, iterate it and move it forward and make progress still. Uh, but I think that that um, yeah, there are undoubtedly lots of barriers to being able to. Uh, run things in the way that one would ideally 
uh, like to and things get in the way like pandemics uh, the focus in the system changes so so you're then looking at a different problem when actually you were trying to uh, develop something over here and then that that all the focus and attention is on discharge from hospital or something and that can be quite a distraction yeah. I'm not sure that I've answered your question really but that but uh... <laughs> no I I think you really have particularly uh, putting that time scale you know that um well, you said earlier, you know, really focus on the opportunity and being bold. And actually, if that might mean that we're thinking in a 10-year timescale for some of those big uh, radical projects, is about sticking with it and really seizing onto the size of that opportunity um, and, uh, and, 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 well, sticking with it. But there's something about resilience in there, which I think is really valuable. Sarah, we're looking at um, the CQC introducing their assurance and, and including in that the provision of support for unpaid carers for the first time. I wonder whether you've got a sense of what the implications of that might be for authorities. Well, I think there are big implications, uh, obviously, more broadly for uh, local authorities in terms of the introduction of, of uh, CQC assurance. Uh, I think there's a lot of anxiety amongst my colleagues about what you know how that's going to go, what it's going to look like, and what it's going to mean for them. Uh, and that's in the context where we've had um, you know national uh, discussions around uh, or national media coverage of Ofsted and some of the impact that that's had. On services. So there's a lot of nervousness, I would say, more broadly. I think in terms of your question in relation to, to carers, one of the things I think is positive about the way CQC have uh, approached the assurance framework is that uh, co-production has, has been very much at the heart of um, the way that they've developed the framework. They've developed it very much with um, people who draw on care and support. And that, that co-production and the voice of carers is, uh, is, I think, reflected in the assurance framework as something which is Im- important. And, and, uh, and hopefully that will be a, you know, a strong theme uh, when uh, CQC are looking at insurance, uh, looking at insurance of authorities to look at how they are incorporating and, and listening to incorporating the voice, but listen, really listening to, to uh, un, unpaid carers, not only those that engage with services, but also those that um, perhaps are not engaging. And how do you reach those people? Um, I, I mean, I do think one of the um, uh, limitations, if you like, or issues that, that there is going to be in terms of how the, uh, the assurance framework and implementation of that um, flows out is is that a lot of it is going to be based on data, analysing data from different local authorities and what's uh, produced nationally, which I think is um, you know we probably don't co- we don't collect uh, the data that that we would need really to get a true picture. Um, you know it is a, 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 a so the um, uh, the ASCOF framework um, is is something which is. Uh, needs to be uh, updated. We know that all of these things take quite a lot of time uh, to uh, make sure that we're uh, collecting the right things that really do uh, focus on what are the outcomes for people. Uh, and then actually getting those systems in place takes time for, for the data to be flowing and to be reliable and, and um, effective. So, I mean, I think 
one of the consequences of that in terms of what that might mean is that that your local data uh, in a local authority and how you can evidence what you're doing locally is going to be uh, really important because there will be limitations as to what the national data will tell you uh, or will tell CQC indeed. So being able to build that that case and that evidence of the work you're doing locally and what um, how, how you can demonstrate, how we as local authorities can demonstrate the difference that we're making uh, uh, with evidence is, is going to be important, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're seeing that with a lot of the authorities that we're working with. Um, Sarah, just a quick uh, last question, because you've been very generous with your time. Um, I wonder, how, how do you personally keep on top of everything that's going on in social care? There's so much going on at the moment. How do you make sure that you're abreast of the latest developments ahead of the curve um, and, and, and getting the pulse of the, those exciting innovations that are happening around the country? Uh, well, I think it's really difficult to keep on top of everything because, as you say, there is so much going on. Uh, and I think sometimes being um, too much in the detail of everything that's going on, you can lose the kind of um, what's what's the main thing here or what 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 is it that we're we're, we're trying to do, um, which I think goes back to that kind of relational approach to how do we have systems that are kind of human centred. Um, I guess, um, having said that, I do try and keep on top of things as much as I can. Um, and that's, uh, I, I mean, I think talking to people is always really, uh, really interesting and really informative. So, um, you know, and I've been privileged, really, obviously, as as um, uh, as president of ADAS, to see um, lots of things going on right across the country, which are so hugely impressive and, and amazing, be that, um, you know, some of the work that some of the ADAS branches do, um, or uh, work that's going on in particular local authorities. So, uh, you know, thinking about how we can use data more to um, have a much more preventive approach uh, to uh, and proactive approach to, to care and support. Uh, that you know, the things that uh, you, you talked uh, you talked just now about sticking with it. But those things that that you know we've we've always wanted to do but never quite get there. How do we? You know, there are examples I think where people are, are, are looking at data and using data to think about. Well, if you know what I can see in this data is that these people are likely to need care and support in the next one, two years, or whatever. And how can we intervene earlier in order to help reduce delay, etc.? All the kind of Care Act principles that 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 we um, are are trying to uh, uh, deliver on. Um, so I think so. I think the conversations with people and actually seeing some of the amazing innovation that's going on right across the country. Um, uh, that that just being one example is um, is is uh, yeah hugely rewarding and and inspiring really in terms of what what people are trying to do uh, uh, across the country you know despite as you said at the beginning uh, you, you know it can feel like it's all crisis and um, you know you know thing people feeling very stretched and as I say there are real challenges and barriers but within that there are um, Lots of people working in care and support who do an amazing job every day of the week, uh, but also amazing work going on to really think about how we innovate and how we uh, change, how we think about not just having more of the same, but actually uh, innovating and, and, and thinking differently about how care and support can be uh, in the future. Isn't it interesting, Sarah? You, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation the importance of peer networks for carers. Uh, and, and maybe what you're describing is the same for those of us who, who work in social care as well, having a community of people who we can learn from 
support each other and, and, and motivate each other as well. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast. It's been a real treat to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that was fantastic. There's some really good reminders that being innovative isn't a new thing that we've suddenly started doing. It's a lifelong thing that we're always looking forward, wanting to make progress, and often recognising that in changing times, we need to respond differently and try new things. And also, there are times when we need to stick with it, build resilience into our work so that innovation doesn't just become this, oh, let's just keep trying new things. But I'm wondering, how can we make sure that small pots of funding for innovation that you know might be out there can be used to do more than just try a new thing? James, what do you think? How do we get that really transformational? Well, I think one of the really interesting challenges is to move away from the idea of just digitising a process. Uh, so taking the way the world works now and finding a way of doing it a bit more efficiently. Um, and actually, I guess what Sarah was describing was how, how do you really reimagine things and um, speak to a completely different group of people who you'd never speak to uh, normally about their experience of a service and, and get their input. But you mentioned those small pots there. Of course, you, ca you can't do a radical transformation of a whole service with a 10, 15,000 pound project. But what you can do is test a very specific hypothesis. So if, if you're thinking, well, there may be a new way to, um, to tap into people's experiences or to reach a new group of people, try and focus the project on testing one hypothesis. And that will then give you a data point to justify uh, more funding in the future, a bit of a business case for that. And you can build on it uh, as you go along. Mm, that sounds helpful, just sort of building those things into um, the future, really, testing those small things out, seeing what works and build, building on that success. Now, sometimes we can feel that the system prevents that innovation, but Sarah's not one of those. She really helpfully points out how much scope there is, and she points out how the CARE Act, for example, gives us that real scope to try new approaches to deliver the things that make a difference for carers. It really encourages that personalised human approach that seeks to understand and value individuals. So it's really great that actually the system is set up in many ways to work well for innovation. And similarly, she shared thinking about the potential positive impact of the CQC assurance framework. So given the co-production approach being taken and how carers' voices are already included in that, it could lead to an even better way of understanding impact and the data we have to evidence that. So she had a real sense of hope that we'll all be able to demonstrate the difference we're making in a more local way, rather than just the more maybe current restrictive data collection of the current ASCOF framework. Um, so, yeah, it's all, there's a real sense of hope there. Do you share that, James, that the CQC framework could be a force for good? Yeah, I, I think it could be really powerful, actually. I mean, I, my, my background is in teaching originally, and um, goodness me, Ofsted uh, struck fear into me all the time. And, um, you know, actually, Ofsted, actually, any regulatory uh, involvement sh should be challenging uh, and stretching. Now it needs to be done in the right way, and I think Ofsted have demonstrated that you know that, that there's a real challenge around culture of making this constructive and um, you know a really positive development. Um, crucially, though, I think what CQC Assurance does is it takes those things that all of us working in adult social care would like to see: more co-production, more involvement, more evidence of feedback going into how we shape the system and actually gives a really strong 
business case. So, you know, why are we going to all of the effort of doing this? Well, it's not because it's a a nice thing that we tack on at the end of a process. Actually, we have um, a, a really important duty to be doing that. That's reflected in the CARE Act. And now the CQC assurance will be requiring uh, all of us to evidence that in one way or another. Mm, sounds like good news. And hasn't it been great just opening up these conversations, looking at the innovation that's already happening, as well as all the potential for the future? I found it really interesting. So thank you everyone for joining us. I hope you found it just as interesting as we have. And I'm really looking forward to more and I hope you'll join us again soon for the next one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us with Carer Catalyst brought to you by Mobilize. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally get them from and look forward to the next episode. Mm-hmm.